Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we're releasing a special episode from a project that I undertook in 2022 that I called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. It was my intention to take all of the best clips about one particular topic and put them together as a masterclass to be released behind a paywall with a subscription-based service on Patreon. Well, we didn't have too many subscribers, so I am breaking these episodes up and releasing them here for free so that they can make an impact and hopefully help some people out there. Today's episode was taken from the second series, all about ketosis and the ketogenic diet. This is part two from the third and final episode, all about everyday people discovering ketogenic diets and improving their health because they change their diets. We always appreciate any feedback that you might have, so feel free to leave us a comment on YouTube or on our website at myboundlessbody.com, where you can always book a complimentary 30-minute session with us at any time. Cheers and enjoy part two of this two-part conversation all about the ketogenic diet impacting the lives of everyday people. We are going to go to Chris Cornell, a really inspiring guy who has a very familiar story as well. He's another person who isn't exactly a household name, but he's doing really great work. We interviewed him on episode 325 of Boundless Body Radio. I thought he had a great story. I thought he had great tips. So let's listen to Chris Cornell and hear his story. For decades, I struggled on and off with uh, with weight gain and weight loss, and uh, it was it was just uh, revolu- revolutionized my life when I learned how to control my weight, and that's led to a whole uh, domino uh, sequence of events that have uh, helped me in other areas as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Do most people just think you found a time travel machine and just like went backwards, <laughs> reverse aging? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's um, it, it's it's interesting. Um, the I, you know, having found low carb and having uh, found a way to improve my health and uh, my appearance and my quality of life, I've also uh, come in contact with a lot of other people who have experienced some of the same benefits. So hanging out in this group of people, um, I'm, I'm not such an anomaly, actually. Uh, I know in the, um, the general population, uh, it's not quite the same. Yeah, it definitely is not. You look at some of the people that are in our world and like the Mark Sissons and the Brad Kearns and the Sean Bakers, all these people, you know, who are aging, but looking like they're getting younger and younger and younger as the years go on. It's really quite remarkable, especially when you compare it to what, like what you mentioned, the general population, that Delta just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. And it's really apparent when you go out and go to the mall or the airport, like we're, we're not, we're not doing great. No, we we are not, and uh, the the some of what I see going on in the uh, the mainstream nutrition and medical fields with respect to the attitudes towards obesity uh, and metabolic disease is kind of disturbing. I think that uh, uh, the average person could you know do a lot more for their health um, just with with lifestyle changes. And I know there's other issues, and there's there's other other solutions that can be a part of that, but um, I definitely don't think that it's appropriate to have people filled with the idea that they are completely helpless and cannot, uh, you know, make changes that will improve their life. And that that goes for just about every area of your life. There's there's things you can do to take control and, and improve your situation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And on that note, don't you believe that it would be easier than most people think? Not that it's going to be super easy, but if people realized the simple things that they could do, that it wouldn't be as big of a pain or the reward would be far greater than what people think it might be. Yes. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, I, 
<sighs> using using the wrong information, uh, some things are are literally impossible to solve. Um, and I I was always the kind of person that tried to figure things out on my own, and uh, you know that worked for certain things. You know, I learned how to replace pipes in my kitchen. I re- I learned how to do some minor electrical work. Um, but you know, I also you know when I didn't know how to do something, I I would typically uh, just for my own safety ask someone for some help and some guidance to try to avoid the problems um, with weight loss. You know, I was literally just following the wrong information. You know, it's like uh, I restrict calories and exercise more sounds great. Um, and there's some small bits of truth to that. But without um, additional knowledge, a lot of people just find themselves on a, uh, you know, a, a endless cycle of losing weight and gaining weight. And uh, and then when I finally one day in uh, January of 2018 reached out to a friend who I, I knew had some knowledge and I asked for a recommendation for a book and he came back with uh, Tobbs's Why We Get Fat. Uh, that single book was the catalyst that got me going on this journey and uh, and led me to a whole bunch of other things. But the change was almost instantaneous. Um, it It happened... I was in the waiting the waiting area of a Mexican restaurant um, on my daughter, my daughter's 16th birthday, and I was reading on a Kindle uh, that that book by Tobbs, and all of a sudden, you know, a light went off or on, and it just, it, I just said, wait a second, I I think I understand this, and I changed what I ordered at dinner that night, and I literally never looked back. Um, wow. You know, I lost I, I lost weight consistently, uh, with with really almost no exceptions. Uh, I've had no, no relapses. You know, I've had a couple of bad days, but, uh, you know, it's been, it's been, uh, unbelievable. Um, so I, you know, I'm down 80 pounds. It's, it's, it's now, um, I'm just about at four years of being at my goal weight at or below 205 pounds. Um, oh, and, and I've actually added, I've probably added a bunch of muscle, um, from you know when I first got to that goal weight, since then I've, I've my body fat has continued to go down, even though my weight has not. So I'm uh, I'm doing better on just about every count. Yeah, that's amazing, and it's so obvious to see when you see the pictures and and you know what you're doing. You're running a lot. You're doing a lot of weightlifting, but it, but when you look at your physical appearance, like it's it's totally apparent that you have completely recompositioned your body, and it's amazing that we can do that at really any age. It just it it requires the right information. When we're when we're talking about your story, let's back up a bit and talk about your your journey into unhealth. Uh, tell us, you know, some of the things that that you noticed, um, not only the weight gain, but also other things that kind of went along with that, and what things you tried along the way. Before you got that great book recommendation, you know I've I've I went up and down in weight quite a bit uh, ever since. Even you know towards the end of my last couple of years of college, I, I I was gaining a few pounds. I was not obese by any stretch. Um, I was very active, and but I was slowly you know gaining weight. I, I really never was at um, what they call a healthy weight, um, uh, but. After I got out of college, I had a lot of uh, work, a lot of jobs that required sitting at a desk for long hours. And, you know, within two years of being out of college, I got up to like a 40 inch waist size. And, um, you know, my weight was creeping up over 230. And, uh, you know, it's hard to remember exactly the, the, you know, the, the sequence. But over the years, you know, I would I would lose 10 pounds and gain 15 pounds. And, 
And before I, you know, before long, um, you know, I was up over 250. And then uh, in my late 40s, it just kept climbing. And uh, um, I, and, and then there was a long time when I never stepped on a scale. So I didn't really realize how heavy I'd gotten. And it was one day when I was 51, um, I stepped on a scale at my mother's house and I saw 278 pounds. And I think it's sort of a vicious circle. You know, you, you, you gain the weight, you become less likely to enjoy doing some of the things, uh, the, the move more type of things like hiking up a mountain or going for a run becomes less enjoyable. So you spend more time, uh, sitting around, um, and, and certainly the diet wasn't helping me. You know, I, I was eating a lot of, uh, refined carbs and other foods that are not, not good for your, your metabolism. And I was always stopping at convenience stores and, and just eating, eating foods that were not, uh, not helpful to me. Um, and so, so even, even when I first got to, to that 278 pounds and realized I had to do something, I didn't know what to do. I cut out, sh um, sugary drinks and I lost like 15 pounds, but it was still a up and down thing until I found that, that book. Um, and whew, let's see the reaching out and asking someone for help, um, was important for a couple of reasons because it, it was sort of like making, it wasn't a completely public, uh, thing, but it was reaching out to someone else who, once I asked for his recommendation, I sort of felt like I had to remain accountable to at least read the book that he recommended for me. And, uh, just that alone, you know, reading, reading a book and, and, and giving it an honest, um, you know, look into what, what was being talked about. There must be a reason why this guy recommended the book. Um, you know, he chose one book out of many for me. Um, and, and that one principle alone is something I've gone back to many times since, like if I want to learn something about running, um, and I have access to somebody that knows a lot about running, I'll say, Hey, uh, you know, like Zach Bitter, the former hundred mile, uh, world record holder, uh, in the hundred mile run, you know, I, I had a couple of opportunities to talk to him, ask for book recommendation, ask for article recommendations. Same thing with other people like Brady Homer, who has been giving me some coaching along the way um, for my now half marathon training. Uh, these people know infinitely more than I'll ever know about running. Why not tap into their knowledge when you have a chance to ask for some help and, uh, you know, get helps get from somebody else, get some ideas to where you should focus your energies. And, and I do that in all areas of my life now. And it's, it's been, it's been very helpful. It's such a great lesson to learn. Why do you think more of us don't do that? Why, why do we think we have all the answers or we just trust the mainstream versus seeking out and finding and, and hiring the experts in the field and, and compensating them fairly for, you know, for that information? I, I feel like most of us would rather, you know, buy, uh, the, the sexy meal plan or, you know, buy the sexy workout equipment. That's the newest thing on the block versus hiring a coach who knows what they've been doing. And they've been in the field for, you know, 20, 30 years. Well, that's a, a great question. And, and for one, I think there is one, one answer to the reason why people don't do that is because they don't know who to ask. Um, it requires some discernment. Um, there are good coaches out there who are well worth every penny that you spend with them. And there's, coaches out there that are not good. Um, uh, and if, you know, if you make the, the wrong decision, people are afraid to make the wrong decision. Um, you don't necessarily want to just reach out to, um, you know, a sort of, uh, 
somebody that you don't have 100% confidence in and just put your whole life in their hands. So you've got to you've got to balance that. And, uh, you know, finding a good coach would, would be, would be life-changing for a lot of people. It's just, how do you do that? And what I've, you know, I've, I've learned through Twitter that by getting involved in a community, you ask some questions, you look at the answers, you try to, you try to gauge, uh, you, you can't tell whether someone's for real just by asking them one question, but if you follow their answers and you read into them and you check them and you verify, um, you can start to get an idea as to who is talking sense and who is not. Um, there's another thing that some people are right about a lot of things and they're wrong about something. You've got to always keep yourself open to that. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, I, I think, I think that's really it. You know, you, you've, you've got to find the right people to go to. You've got to make a lot of decisions on your own and you got to learn to trust some of your instincts. Um, uh, but then you've got to, you know, where when you find someone that you trust, you can start to put more of your um, outcome in their hands. Once you once you feel like they're going to give you good advice, you can start you can really start using that advice to your benefit. Yeah, you made so many really good points there. And I just want to point out like Twitter specifically, somebody in my neighborhood just put out a tweet. It was about a week ago. It was something about like cardio. Should I be doing cardio? And all of these like answers came through with all these people that had very specific things and why it was great. None of them asked any questions like good for what? What what are your goals? What are you training for? There was it was like definitive. Like here here's what you have to do. And so to me, that's a great barometer to look at those people and say like, well, you guys are probably not the people I want to be hiring as a coach versus somebody like you mentioned, Zach Bitter. We just hosted Zach Bitter for the second time. We did an episode all about nutrition for endurance athletes. And the number of times that he said, I don't know, it depends. It, there's so much nuance to it. Zach Bitter is an amazing coach, an amazing human, because he considers all of those things before saying like, yeah, go go zero carb and this is your running program. And like, there's so much nuance. And I think that's a really great way to find those good coaches because it can get very confusing out there. Again, yeah, again, more more excellent points. It's, um, I, I mean, you know, I had the opportunity to speak to Zach and, and ask him questions. And he, you know, if you ask, if you ask some people about, can you, can you run effectively and efficiently with a low carb diet? Um, their first answer will be no. And then you look at somebody like Zach and you're like, well, all right, even if a low carb diet isn't optimal for every form of exercise, here's a guy that is setting world records, um, running, running, He's running his 100th mile of a 100 mile race faster than I can run <laughs> one mile. I have faster than I could probably run a half a mile. I could keep get a, I could meet up with Zach at the 99 and a half mile mark, and I wouldn't be able to keep up with him to the finish if I was fresh. So the guy must know a, a, a couple of things. You know, it's um, it's it, it is you know it's it's mind blowing that uh, some people are so absolute and uh, and lack nuance. 
Yeah, totally. In that episode that we did with him, we talked about somebody who's in the endurance world more on the female side of things. And she would just come right out and say, you cannot do endurance sports on low carbohydrate and women cannot do intermittent fasting. And it's like, well, you're you're just closing the door. There's no discussion there. If you say that can't be done, I have clients that are doing it. So first of all, it can be done. And some people might prefer that. And Zach had just a wonderful way of working around that and and saying like, okay, if you choose to do this, here are some things to be mindful of. And, And and yeah, I, I just think that's a really great way to find the good people who are really going to help you along the way. So Chris mentioned Zach Bitter, who we have actually interviewed two times, but we're going to take a clip from Zach Bitter's first interview on Boundless Body Radio back on episode 87 so we can learn from him and learn how an endurance athlete also found low-carbohydrate and ketogenic diets. Yeah, it was kind of maybe... I maybe I just was fortunate that I had a couple things happen in parallel. And one was, uh, I started listening to podcasts while I was running. I think, uh, when I, uh, when I first started kind of training for ultra marathons, I was teaching full time. So I'd find myself basically working, running, eating, and sleeping for the most part. And at one point, uh, when I was, you know, just doing it essentially for free and enjoyment, I thought there's gotta be a way I can, you know, kill two birds with one stone or, you know, not only run for this two, three hour time period every day. And that's when I kind of discovered podcasts. I thought, well, if I'm going to be out here for this long, I may as well learn something while I'm doing it. And eventually I started kind of tuning into some endurance podcasts Some some would talk about like nutrition and things like that. And, and that's kind of when I was made aware of uh, like Dr. Volokh and Dr. Finney and some of their research and work. And around that same time, I had done what I would consider my first full season of ultra marathons. I ran, I think it was 350 milers in about a nine week time frame in the fall of 2011. And at, at the end of that, I just kind of, when I just did a kind of an assessment, I, I'll do this at the end of any season or any race at this point where I'll just kind of look back and reflect on things and just try to really tease out what's working and what's not working. And when I was being honest with myself, it just, it, there seemed to be some things that weren't very sustainable with my lifestyle. Uh, the big elephant in the room, so to speak, was the big training volume and the racing and things like that. But uh, it wasn't like my running was struggling mightily and I was still enjoying it. It was more just like the rest of the day outside of the trainings tended to take a big hit from the training. So I noticed things like I stopped being a good sleeper in high school and college. I was always able to kind of go to bed and sleep eight, nine hours and pop out of bed and not really give it much thought outside of that. And then by that point in my training, though, I found that I was you know blocking off sometimes 10 hours a night just to try to get eight hours of sleep because I'd wake up multiple times. And uh, I also just noticed I had pretty, pretty big energy swings throughout the course of the day. I'd feel like I either had like all sorts of energy, I could do anything, or I was could just sit down and take a nap. <laughs> so those things just seemed like that if I kind of kept going that route, they weren't going to play well for, uh, play out well for me from a long-term sustainability in the sports standpoint, uh, potentially health as well. So I started exploring some options in terms of like what I could possibly do. And at the same time, I had kind of been hearing some of the stuff about the low carb, low carb stuff and thought I'd give it a shot. And, uh, when I did that, I had, I had a pretty easy transition, I guess, relative to what you hear. I mean, some people have some horror stories when they're kind of switching over and, but for me, it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty, uh, eventless for the most part. I, it, I 
went pretty strict keto for about the first month. And I noticed pretty quickly, like within the first week I started sleeping through the night again, which was a pretty big sign to kind of, okay, there's some, I need to explore this more and kind of try to figure out what's going on here. And the other thing I noticed was rather than kind of having this ebb and flow of energy during the day, I had more of an even keel, steady energy stream. And the one thing that stood out in the negative, I guess, in those first, that first month was uh, fortunately for me, I was, I knew just enough at the time probably to make sure I did this switch when I was in an off season. So I didn't really have any uh, structured workouts I had to do. I was just out like running when I felt like it and running as slow as I needed to, to feel good and just enjoy what I was doing. Yeah. So the one thing I did notice during that phase though, is that first, the first like four weeks, it seemed like almost like every other run would be a scenario of, I'd be feeling like I was running say a seven minute mile pace, but then I'd look down the watch and it'd be like an eight and a half minute mile pace. So (laughs) I was, I was getting less return for my investment, so to speak in the running world. And that was concerning, um, up until like, you know, about four weeks where, again, I, I knew just enough to kind of stick to it a little bit longer than bailing out after the first week or two because of that. And since I had the affordability of being in the off season, I didn't have anything to rush into. So I let it kind of ride out by about a month in, I, that started to normalize where my pace is at those really low end endurance type intensity started to renormalize. So that was good. Uh, that was a positive sign in my mind. And then it just became a question of, well, what happens when I introduce structure training and start introducing things like we talked about earlier, short intervals, tempo runs, long runs, and actually have a periodized buildup. How would that impact uh, a different nutrition strategy that I hadn't tried before? So that probably took me a good year and a half, two years to probably really fine tune. And what I ended up finding worked well for me was uh, a low carbohydrate approach, but not necessarily strict ketogenic year round. There would be kind of phases during the year that made sense to bring my carbs kind of to ketogenic low levels where, uh, you know, they'd be 50 grams or less, uh, but they were typically off season or what I'd call like a deload week where I reduce volume and intensity and just kind of focus more on recovery. And then when I would get into kind of peak phases of training, I would just be a little more liberal with carbohydrates. Uh, They would stay still within kind of the framework of what most would probably consider low carbohydrate, but not necessarily like ketogenic low. So Uh, there'd be phases where, you know, I might be doing 20 hours worth of training, both with running and strength work, mobility stuff. And, you know, for those, for those type of weeks, you know, I might flex my carbs up to 20% of my intake just to kind of, uh, assist the, the fast forward. I was pressing on my metabolism training that much. So that seemed to really work well for me. I didn't find that kind of reverting back to a moderate carbohydrate yielded a whole lot better results in my workouts. So I kind of teased out, I guess, what you'd call maybe a sweet spot for me or what uh, I, one of the guys I really like to follow these days is Dr. Mike Nelson, because he's always kind of like, I don't want to say sitting on the fence, but he, he, to a degree he is where like, I, I feel like if someone is pulling a little too far one way, he's like, well, let's pull you back a little bit this way. And, and you're just, just kind of finding that sweet spot for you so that you can really feel comfortable being able to run for long periods of time at a low intensity on water and electrolytes if you need to, but also, you know, not have it just, you know, come right back up if you do take in a carbohydrate source during a race or a hard workout and things like that. So it's kind of finding that balance for you or that perfect medium. And uh, the way I kind of like to describe it is I want to try to get fat adapted enough so that I don't have to try to, you know, mainline fuel the entire time during a 12 hour event 
but I can, I can, I can still take in some and kind of reap the benefits from that faster acting fuel source, uh, that most of my intra race fuel is going to be coming from. And, uh, you know, but, but not have so much of it that I feel like my stomach's going to, going to be the, the downturn for my, my results. Man, that is, <laughs> that is so well explained. <laughs> and, and man, I, I can totally like empathize with endurance athletes when their performance is decreasing because they're switching to a low carbohydrate diet and you're seeing those times slip downward and people bail, people bail on the diet. Cause you don't want to go slower. And I just, I wish more people would just ride it out. Like you did a little bit longer, or like you said, periodizing. I don't think a lot of people realize how important that periodization is with exercise and nutrition. Like there are times when you can have more carbohydrates and be just fine. You can maintain leanness. You can have more energy. Your performance can increase. And there's other times when, you know, you, you don't need it. You don't need all those carbohydrates. I, I think that's so well explained. And I think the point that you just made about, you know, the, the gut bomb carbohydrates that, that so many endurance athletes have that I had for years and, and even just the logistics of carrying around all those products all day is just, it's so crazy. It's so nice to become fat adapted and access the fuel the way you did. I, I, I love that you made that point. So we're going to go from one Zach to another with a very different sports background where Zach Bitter was doing a lot of endurance sport. We're now going to hear from Zach Kushner, who was a football player with USC, who later in his life found a ketogenic diet and was able to lose a whole bunch of weight and make himself really healthy. He's got a great story. Go back to episode 144 of Balanced Body Radio if you want to hear the whole thing. But let's hear his personal story with low carbohydrate diets. So in, in college, um, not only did I really enjoy football, but I got pretty into weightlifting as well. It was just something uh, that I like to do in the weight room, compete against myself. And um, I would browse different bodybuilding forums to try and educate myself more on lifting and nutrition. In, in addition to all the information that I was receiving from strength conditioning coaches, as well as uh, nutritionists that, that the uh, football team provided us. and um, one day I came across this ketogenic diet and thought, wow, that, that sounds like something really cool. And um, maybe not the best for me right now, because I'm trying to, to put on weight. But when my football career ends, I think this might be a good way to cut weight. And seeing that it was a high fat diet and the type of foods, I was like, I love all these foods too. I mean, even as a little kid, I remember wanting to eat just uh, plain pieces of butter and, and put sour cream on as much things as I could and really liked, um, uh, steak and, and chicken and fish and all that. So when I, when I read about the ketogenic diet, I'm like, wow, this is all of my favorite foods cut out the rest. I think this is something um, that, that I should try when I'm, when I'm done playing, uh, I implemented it and uh, it worked wonders. Wow. So what year was that that you started to mix that in? I believe I first started that in 2014. Um, when, when I first knew my, my football career was done and decided, you know, it's time to lose some weight. Uh, the first step I took rather than dive straight into keto and do anything dramatic was I, I cut out sugar and uh, anything that I, I deemed to be unhealthy, uh, not real food. Uh, you know, I wasn't big on sweets, uh, candies, ice cream, all, all that type of thing anyways, but made sure that I was proactively avoiding it. I then switched to what I call slow carb where um, in addition to cutting out sugar, I was cutting out refined carbs, whether um, that be um, certain uh, pastas and uh, grain items, 
um, eating a lot of brown rice, uh, quinoa when I was going to be eating my, my carbohydrates. And then from there, I decided, okay, let's go full on uh, ketogenic, uh, where I cut my carbs to below with 20 uh, net grams of carbohydrate per day. And um, the weight started just melting off. Wow. So what other benefits did you notice? I think a lot of people will, you know, take a look at a ketogenic diet because they want to lose weight or lose fat, but they notice other things along the way. Did you have any other things health wise that you noticed as a benefit? Oh yeah. So, I mean, uh, to, to start, I do want to mention the first five weeks for me were very tough as my body was, uh, becoming adapted to running off of fat rather than glucose for energy, uh, mixed in with a little bit of a uh, brain fog, tiredness, um, uh, maybe a little irritability. And then at about the five week point is when I noticed things to, to really change. Um, in addition to dropping water weight and, and uh, some fat there, um, I really felt the cognitive benefits of it. I remember one day I'm in the office and I haven't eaten yet. And we're, you know, a couple hours past lunchtime. And I had just been focused in on my work since I had stepped in the door that morning and continued to go all day. And I was like, Wow, these are the uh, the cognitive benefits I've been um, been reading about, and um, you know that that's lasted me through whenever I, I've continued to eat in a, a ketogenic state. So that's been amazing. Um, of course, there's also the weight loss, losing the the, the fat that I did. Uh, you know, I lost a total of 92 pounds. I just generally feel so much healthier. Uh, for uh, one of the examples I like to give is when I was bigger, trying to pack on weight. Um, it wasn't, wasn't an easy job. Uh, you know, it looks fun trying to eat all this food, but at the same time it can become overwhelming. And, uh, my body didn't want to put on more weight at that point. And, uh, let's say I was crossing the street, uh, there's a couple seconds left and I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta run across and started getting to the point where, geez, uh, I gotta take a few deep breaths after I run across. I, I shouldn't feel like <laughs> this, uh, at all. Uh, the weight dropped off. I, I feel great. Just feeling lighter moving around is so much easier. Um, you know, um, not have, having to worry with, with any of, of those type of things that the additional weight that you're forcing on brings to you. So just my overall feeling of well-being, whether that's um, going to sleep at night, um, running around with friends and family, um, crossing the street uh, in a hurry, um, um, I, I feel great. So it's something I'm really glad that, that I did and uh, really happy that I lost the weight to get, to get my health where it is today. Mm, that's a great answer. You have done a little bit of coaching, which I want to talk about here in a little bit, but before I do, I, just because you've done the coaching, I want to ask this question. Five weeks, you said you felt pretty miserable for five weeks, which when you look back, those five weeks were years ago. Well, I mean, come on, like way worth it, like totally worth whatever suffering you had to go through. Obviously getting around to the other side is amazing. We just got a message from a shared client, Bethany and I, that said, I just ate one keto meal and I feel like a horrible person. I feel terrible right now. Is this how this is always going to feel? And my response was like, you're asking, you're asking if, if this is what Bali is like when you're at the ticker ticket counter of the very first airport before three different airplane transfers and a crappy bus ride until you get to Bali. Like you're on the journey that's going to get you to this amazing place. And once you're there, you don't ever have to leave. And so I'm just, I'm really curious. You have this background of like pushing through, you know, the grit, the determination, this, the, you know, the sports, everything you learned, you know, how to, how to drive and be strong with your teammates and everything like that. As you're coaching somebody, is it really like a mindset thing that people need to just push through or are there things that they can do to, 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 
you know, lessen the misery for themselves because those five weeks can feel pretty long when you're in them. It's totally worth it when you're on the other side. But I'm just wondering if it's like a mindset question of that's something that set you apart that other people maybe don't have as a tool. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, and I really do like that Bali analogy. I may, I may steal it if you allow me to. I stole but, it too. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember when I first started, uh, as I said, I was not feeling very great. Um, now I had done a lot of research going into it and I read story after story of other people who didn't feel great and responses were keep on trucking, just get through this. Um, it, it's going to be horrible at first. Um, and then you're going to break through to the other side and you're going to be glad that you did. So I told myself, you know what, I am going to stick to and trust the plan and I'm going to come out on the other side and nothing's going to stop me. Uh, it really came down to discipline and determination, you know, and I'm a week and a half in, it would have been so easy to just uh, give up, uh, go get, uh, you know, a pizza and a pint of ice cream and be like, screw this. I'm so much happier this way. Uh, but I didn't cave. I, I went through those five weeks. And a little side note there, I read that for most people, it takes two to three weeks. So for whatever reason, it took me longer. And I thought I'm going to continue on until I feel good. Uh, when I when I broke through, I was I was so happy that I did it. And um, uh, yeah, never looked back. Mm. It's almost like that kind of suffering is the exact sign that you're looking for that tells you that it's working. You should feel terrible. And, and again, it's like what... <laughs> If, if you're, if you're standing in line, you know, with 150 other smelly people trying to get on a plane, like that's a sign <laughs> that you're going to Bali. Like, you know, you're going to Bali. Why do people bail? Why don't people write it out a little bit longer? I think it's just so easy to, to give into temptation. Um, you know, a quote I like to tell people is, uh, don't trade what you want the most for what you want at the moment. And I, I think a lot of people just really lose sight of, uh, that long-term, uh, goal that they have. Uh, when they have the opportunity to just walk down the street to 7-Eleven or um, go, go to a local restaurant and get something that they know is going to provide them with that instant satisfaction. It's, it's so easy to, to succumb to. So you, you really need to, uh, to get disciplined and develop that, that mindset going into it and just tell yourself, you know, these situations are going to come uh, and I'm going to be mentally prepared to tell the little uh, man or woman in my head, no, I'm not going to give in. I'm going to keep on going till I get to my destination. So Zach reported feeling not very good for five weeks. So that is a very, very long time. And as I've done this for longer and longer, I've realized that you can reduce that time a whole lot. If you do nothing else, go back to the original advice from our exclusive content with Ben Azadi to learn how you can make that keto flu be much, much, much better. It should not take that long. It should not be that difficult. So do not let that deter you from trying a low carbohydrate diet if that's what you want to try. Next, we are going to hear from the ketogenic mom, Jen Winkler, who we interviewed in episode 299 of Balanced Body Radio. And this is a person who should have been introduced to a ketogenic diet very early in life to be able to deal with seizures, which as she will explain, we have known for about 100 years that ketogenic diets work wonders with with epilepsy and seizures. And it should have been presented as one of the very first things that she could try rather than be medicated. But let's hear her story now. For somebody who doesn't really know, um, kind of a brief history about like epilepsy and epilepsy treatments. I think more people now kind of, you know, tie those two things together and like, yeah, epilepsy can be connected to ketogenic and, and more people recognize that. But this isn't new. This isn't something somebody figured out like five, 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about how we originally were treating this? 
Yeah. So in the early 1900s was when they had discovered the ketogenic diet or therapeutic ketogenic diet for children with epilepsy. So they were having kids, having seizures. Um, the way they would treat the children was put them in the um, in their hospital and they would make them fast. I believe it was about 48 hours to get the ketones going. So they couldn't eat. It was 24 to 48, somewhere in there. They would make them fast so that the ketones get built up in the body and start healing the brain. And what I'm assuming is the gut as well, because as most people know, there's a deep connection with our gut and our brain. <clears throat> they consider our gut our second brain. So they would start the fast and then they would start the ketogenic diet on the children where it would be a very high fat. I think typically back then it was about an 80%, 80% of the calories was fat and then 20% was protein and carbs. Um, so pretty much almost always the children stopped having seizures. They didn't have to stay ketogenic, but back then it was kind of like, there wasn't processed foods back then. It was just their basic foods. There were maybe a few little things here and there, but nothing like what we have today. So they were still pretty healthy. They were having their veggies and their, you know, maybe a toast with breakfast or something like that. As time evolved, pharmaceuticals came into the picture and they developed um, the first medication for anti, anti-epilepsy medication. And then when there was another one and another one, they said, why do we need to force kids to eat what I would call a healthy diet, but they called it ketogenic. Why force them to eat a different way when they can just pop a pill? And that has really become the mentality of not just epilepsy, but of many things these days of heart disease, of blood pressure, of um, diabetes. Let's just stick ourselves with insulin every single time, you know? So that's where that started. And now there's a plethora of different medications that um, they will give adults and children alike. They, it's very rare that they will try ketogenic first. John Hopkins University, John Hopkins Hospital has done a lot of research with this. They now actually, I think for about 12 or 13 years, have had an, a whole section dedicated for ketogenic for adults now. And people can fly there. They can have you know training on how to do it for themselves because it is very different. You can put a child in a hospital for a week, two weeks. It's very easy for that to happen. An adult, not so much. So, um, so there's lots of research with it. And John Hop I think John Hopkins has about seven editions now on their ketogenic and modified Atkins book. And this last one has tons of stuff to show the evidence of how it can treat Alzheimer's, autism, ADHD, um, Parkinson's, lots of pretty much almost any neurological disease. Um, but yeah, they, if, if you really dig hard in the epilepsy world of it, they're, they typically say they will try one medication. If the medication doesn't work, try a new medication. If that medication doesn't work, try a dual medication, meaning, or um, yeah, so having two medications, which is where I was at. And if that doesn't work, you just keep adding at that point. What it's supposed to be, and some places will do, is after the dual one, then they try the diet. Then they try the ketogenic. Really, it should be like the opposite. <laughs> try the diet first instead of infiltrating the body with so much foreign substance. Um, but yeah, they didn't even approach it that way to me. I had to be the one to be my own advocate and uh, 
try the diet. Wow. And it's like the, the knowledge that we had because of the medications, it just kind of almost like went away. And now we have things like the Charlie foundation and all these things like bringing it back to light. Like that was what nineties that that was starting to happen where it was like, wait, we, we did this in the past. Where did this go? It's crazy. And if you told me like, yeah, we developed these drugs and the drug is like 80% better than the diet. Like, okay, great. This is great advancement of science and we're making progress, but that's just never the case. And that says nothing for any of the side effects. I mean, what side effects were you noticing on some of those medications? So the first one I was on, I think it was only two or three weeks when I was 12. So I know nothing of that one. Then they put me on Depakote, which is valproic acid. They said it was one of the safest ones that you could be on. It was a relatively new one back then. That one is what caused the insulin resistance in me. It is what caused me to gain as a teenager, which you can only imagine a teenage girl gaining up to two, over 200 pounds. Is It was killer on my self-esteem. It caused mental, um, issues where the depression was very strong. Um, the PCOS grew stronger as well. So having symptoms like, I can never say the word, but the one where there's like hair growing on your chin, the hair, hair, or something like that. Mm. I would have that. Uh, it, it would be like little things as a teen, you go to a sleepover when you wake up, even if I like shaved it or waxed it or whatever, wake up and it's there and you got to kind of hide. So no one knows it, it's, it's so, so my self-esteem took the biggest toll to be honest. Um, but it was all those things. Pancreatitis. When I was in college, I was hospitalized with pancreatitis for a whole week. I was put under, I don't remember much because the pain was just so excruciating, excruciatingly strong. Switched my medication from Depakote to Lamictal. I was on Lamictal. I had tons of breakthrough seizures. I had one or two before studying abroad in Austria for a whole semester. I was in Europe for five months, had six seizures there, came back. Um, then they started the dual therapy. So after that, that's when there was like up and down with the mental health part Went on Lamictal, my mental health was a little better Then when they did the dual, it was kind of eh, back and forth. So I would say Definitely the depression, anxiety, panic attacks were probably some of the hardest parts most recently um, before lowering the medications I was on now. Wow. So. Yeah. I mean, those are severe complications that you're talking about. And I just think about the, the window of time between, you know, you hearing the word ketogenic in 2005 to 2018 when hearing it again, like that's 13 years. That's a long time to be dealing with some of those things. Yeah, wow. absolutely. And it's, yeah, it, there was a lot of anger. I had, to, <laughs> I had to forgive. I had to get over understanding. Sometimes doctors, they just don't know what's the newest research. You know, they don't have time, unfortunately, with their hands tied with insurance policies to actually go and look at PubMed and go look at the newest research. And I don't mean to downplay my previous neurologist when she just said, I don't know, because she was sincere. She didn't know. And she actually had epilepsy herself. So I, I, I tend to wonder, like, if I had stayed with her and told her, you know, hey, this is working for me, like, would she try it herself as a doctor? So. Yeah. That's so interesting. I just, this is where I get so frustrated. I'm sure you do too. When people say this, this diet is not maintainable. You can't sustain this for the long term. Does that drive you bonkers? Yes and no. <laughs> I think in, inside it, it does. Um, but I try to have mercy on people more like, okay, they don't have the education or the, maybe they didn't read what I've read, the studies that I've read. Um, they don't have the experience that I have. 
doing it. So I try to just have a merciful heart on it and be like, okay, and, and shove it aside. You know what? It's it's going to be everywhere. It, it, yeah. So it, it's a yes and a no. Myself, I'm not, if someone tells me like, you shouldn't do this, this is bad for you. You can't do it long-term. Yes, that's going to bother me. If they're just saying it generally in the air, I'm like, okay, whatever, shoot it off. I, I can't take on stuff like that. I don't, I don't have the mental power to do that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I do believe you can do it long-term because our ancestors did it long-term. As long as you're doing it properly, eat the fruits and the vegetables that are in season, um, have a primarily animal-based diet. Like you look at when people were, when it was like cavemen or whatever, that, that time, they weren't hoarding up vegetables from a grocery store. You know, they weren't holding eggs all the time. Even it was just, okay, let's go and kill. They still do it. The Maasai tribe, you know, they're going out, killing the animals to eat, drinking the blood, doing all that stuff. The next two people we are going to hear from are people that have an extensive background in sports and in personal training. So we're first going to hear from Krishna Hanks, who was a professional dancer for most of her career. She later got into Pilates and personal training and wellness coaching. And we're going to hear her story about how she found a low carbohydrate diet and how she was able to fix some of the problems that she was noticing in herself and with her clients. If you want to hear the whole story, we interviewed her on episode 304 of Balanced Body Radio. Do you feel like you're the healthiest you've ever been in your entire life right now? I think I'm at one of those stages where I feel extremely vibrant. Yes. You know, it's hard to remember exactly how you felt when you were 20, you know, or let's say when I was a teenager turning backflips down a basketball court. Um, But I feel much better than I did when I was 40, for sure. Um, overcoming some, you know, health issues due to nutrition, but definitely, I think, you know, there's no reason that many, many people my age shouldn't also feel vibrantly healthy. And I think that if there's anything I hope to inspire and empower people is to take charge of your health. Yeah, I love that so much. I get a little frustrated. I'm, I'm wondering if you do too, when people just look around and see everybody else just on that slow kind of steady decline into aging and we just say it's normal or we call it dad bod or it's just normal to have your back hurt or your joints hurt or poor digestion and you're just gaining all this weight and taking medications. Does that ever frustrate you that that's be, become so normalized? Completely. You know, it, you know, a perfect example is someone, you, if I go, you know, for a routine checkup or something, they always say, what are your medica- medications? And I say, none. And they're like flabbergasted, right? You know, the eyebrows go up, the eyes open wide. It, I think we, we've so come to accept that, like, I'm going to use 50 as a number, but it might even be less that once you hit 50 and above, it just starts going down, right? Your movement skills deplete, your energy depletes. As you mentioned, all these things like joint problems, issues. I I strongly inherently believe it doesn't have to be that way. And we've got a lot of really amazing role models within particularly the low-carb community. Look at Mark Sisson, what? He's 68, looks phenomenal, right? Um, I mean, you can go on the list of numerous people in, in this field who are on the aging trajectory, but they still have vibrant health. And that, that's kind of my word. I think it's 
you know, you, you really have to invest in your, your understanding of what nutrition does, getting, you know, a good exercise routine. Um, and I think maybe the biggest challenge for many people my age is we've been told to fear everything, right? To fear fat, to fear saturated fat, particularly to fear the sunshine, right? To, you know, fear even protein, right? It, it, that all of the fear is not really serving us well as we age, in my opinion. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I love that you mentioned some of those people, some of our, you know, absolute favorite people in this space. And you're right, such an example. And so are you such an example of somebody who, you know, maybe your life was going down a different path, which I do want to talk about. But but you changed that you turn that around. And now you're healthy and vibrant. You used a word that I, I really wanted to talk about with you today, which is investment. So I want to make sure that we go back to that. You recently wrote about this in a wonderful article. And all of your writing is absolutely fantastic. I want to go back to that. But before we do, I do want to hear a little bit about your story. I know you have a background in dance and Pilates and you had some things kind of go wrong in your forties. Is that correct? Absolutely. So, you know, sort of short, short version of the background to lead to what I call my, my health story or my food story is, um, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up with, you know, kind of basic, you know, uh, my mom was a fabulous cook on a really tight budget. You know, we were a one income family but she, you know, cooked meat, vegetables, all those kinds. I grew up with that, right? I started dancing professionally around the age of 15, right? That lasted me to about the age of 43, uh, something like that, which is pretty long for a dancer. Um, along the way, that's when I also, as any dancer knows, you have to be able to do multiple things just to survive. I taught dance. I certified in uh, Iyengar yoga, classical Pilates, you know, I was a personal trainer for many companies in New York. Uh, I worked also for a company called Homebodies. So I was doing all kinds of movement things along the way, right? As you already mentioned in the opening, I've got two degrees or three degrees, bachelor's and master's from Indiana University in Kinesiology, and then later my MBA. But all of those things, right, I was doing, but I did the MBA after I stopped dancing, but you know, throughout that dance career uh, along, along the way. Um, but my food story begins after I stopped dancing or was winding down. I had been pretty much for the last or two decades of my performing career a vegetarian. And somewhere towards the end of my dance, you know, early 40s or something, I started having like these very, very severe, what I call joint issues, right? So going from someone at the top of their game, you know, I could do anything with my body, anything I ask it, it would do to where sitting and standing was a challenge, right? So joints swollen, you know, knuckles big, just debilitating, right? So I had to really kind of figure out how to manage my day because I could only do a certain amount over the course of the day. Um, I was at that time working in, a, in an executive coaching uh, for an executive coaching company in the Netherlands. They're very kind. Everybody was very supportive on that. But I spent what I call two years on the medical hamster wheel. You know, oh, you must have rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, you have some strange autoimmune disease. Or maybe you've got, you know, some kind of rare infection that you picked up somewhere along the way. 
literally two years of no, no ideas, really. But meanwhile, I wasn't getting better. In fact, I was getting worse. Um, sort of at the end of that two years, I was having dinner with a, a good friend who was also this fabulous physical de- therapist named Ted Wilhelmsen. He's no longer with us, sadly. He was specialized in dancers. And anyway, and we were just having dinner. And he said, have you ever thought about your diet? Ah, uh, you know, I like, you know, flabbergasted, got big eyes, eyes go up. And I said, what do you mean my diet's perfect? You know, I'm vegetarian. You know, I don't eat this. I don't eat that. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, maybe that's the problem, right? So I went home. I, I thought about it. First thing the next morning, I called him and apologized because I was not very nice to him. I felt really bad about being so negative. I said, you know, I apologize, but I'm listening. And maybe there is something here because you're the only person who ever said that. After two years, all kinds of specialists, you name it. I saw it. I did it. I did every test possible. No one ever said anything about nutrition. Wow. And and I thought about it. Well, like, all I can do is try it, right? So I slowly, probably as every ex, or I call myself a recovering vegetarian, you know, you start with the eggs and you then you segue a little bit into the meat. Bit by bit, just started adding back things in and things started to change. It was pretty phenomenal, right? And I thought, wow, there's really something to this power of nutrition. You know, I thought about my whole life was spent been about moving, right? How do I make my body move the best it can move, right? I always thought I was fueling it okay, right? Because I was still able to do everything until I couldn't. Um, and then my husband, the fabulous guy that he is, read this article in 2002 by Gary Taubes called what if it's all been a big fat lie? And just the light bulbs went up for me. Like, wow, you know, I've got inflammation or something, right? Maybe, you know, through all my years of putting more and more carbohydrates in my diet, lots of bread, the, the Netherlands is a very heavy bread culture, sugar, I substituted lots of protein and things like that for carbohydrates. And so then we both sort of went down that rabbit hole of reading everything we could read, right, about. And then his book, Good Calories, Good Bad Calories, came out, and it, it just was a game changer, you know, completely. My health, I think now, you know, and I think like everybody, you know, first you add the meat back in and those kind of things. But then the whole idea of really reducing the carbohydrates, right, made a whole new path of health in that way. And I think part of, you know, and I've said this many times to people, so weight was not an issue for me. So I think people just assume if you're, you know, kind of a normal body weight or, you know, thin, you know, I'm slender, that there can be nothing wrong with your nutrition. It must just be okay, right? You know, you know, we see people with poor metabolic health who are, you know, they now have a name, the tofi, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, right? Um, 
But I think that's why no one ever really thought to have the conversation with me. Um, and I, I think that's that's something really missing, right? You know, in uh, in many, many health conversations. Yeah. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. What a cool journey that you've been on. And, and I, I'm really curious before we got online, we were talking about the book that I'm listening to currently that just came out the great plant-based con and it is so good. Jane Buxton does such an amazing job in this book. And I I remember this line that she just said, which is basically like, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you read the newspaper, you're misinformed. (laughs) That's pretty accurate. First of all, I I agree with that hundred percent, but it's also the same kind of truth in nutrition where it's like, if you don't pay attention to what's going on nutritionally, you're pretty uninformed. But if you start researching nutrition, what you learn is probably just a load of crap. You're probably learning that, that all these plants and carbohydrates are really good for you. And we need to follow the food pyramid and limit saturated fat and meat. It's going to cause cancer, which is just complete and utter garbage. So I'm just wondering for you, how, how difficult was it for you to unlearn all the things that you thought were so healthy and, and learn this new paradigm shift that's going completely against the grain of what anybody's saying. I, I think there may be multiple things. Well, first, it really helped that the two of us, we, we don't have children. It's just my husband and I in our house really went down the investigative research route ourselves, right? So that we were kind of discussing things, debating things and, talking about it in, in that way. Another piece that was highly influential is, you know, I was living out outside of the country for close to a couple decades, right? So let's say, you know, 90, uh, late eighties, you know, nineties, early part of 2000. And every time I came back to visit family or friends into the United States, I kept seeing people just started looking worse. And it wasn't a, a weight thing. It wasn't that they were just getting larger, but they, you know, looked energy less. They looked in poor health, posture, you know, um, you saw more and more people walking with walkers or needing assistance in the airport. So a sort of thing just, it was like a story playing in my head, like what's going on. Also seeing that many, many people were just exercising crazy amounts and still having health issues, right? So, you know, believing that whole idea that you can exercise away a poor diet. Um, so those things cause me to still, you know, think critically. And maybe it's easier to have a little critical eye when you're, you're not, you know, in the United States, right? Um, in fact, one of my very first blogs, uh, you know, I started blogging in, 2010, I believe, uh, around there, you know, just after Gary Tubbs was the first, it's titled, let's change the conversation. Something that I, I picked up in Europe, people don't sit at the dinner time and talk about calories and, you know, is this healthy and that, you know, but in America, you know, there's kind of a, a obsession, right? Oh, should I eat that? Or shouldn't I eat that? It was a bizarre, you know, kind of two sides. And certainly things probably have changed a lot. Um, but I think it's having a different lens. And the other thing is being in the fitness industry so long, whether it's, and I I include, let's say I was in the performing arts, you know, I did a lot of personal training and fitness in that way. Just seeing that people struggle at all ages with weight, particularly 
and with figuring out nutrition. So we say, well, what's what people are advising? It's just not working, right? And you know, I think that maybe growing up in the Midwest, my parents were also, you know, very opinionated, had their own ideas. Uh, you know, I, I was grown up to use your own critical thinking skills. Maybe that also influenced me to not say. It's just, it's just not working. And then my own personal experience, it didn't work for me either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Same. I, all these personal training books behind me tell me exactly what I need to tell my people. They need to eat plenty of meals and plenty of snacks and lots of whole grains. I, I would tell people like you have to eat nine to 11 servings of vegetables every single day. I couldn't do that. I did all the smoothies and all the salads and buying all of this produce wrapped in you know, plastic and put in plastic bags and like all I, I did all of it. And you throw food away at the end of the week. Not only does it not work if you can pull it off, but I don't even think anybody could even pull it off to begin with. Anyway, it was so frustrating. You know, and I, I think, you know, what you're touching on, it seems to me, is like we talk uh, a lot about the weight and absolutely low carb, high fat is, is very good at helping people get to a weight that's healthy for them. However, there are so many other benefits, right? To exactly what you're saying is you don't have to eat six to seven to eight meals a day, right? You, you know, I think Zoe Harkob has this phrase is, you know, unless you want to be the size of a cow, why would you graze all day long, oh, right? <laughs> no. um, and it, for me too, I know when I was really heavily carb-based, I was many hours a day hangry. Right. You know, I, I, you know, I would, I could come out of a rehearsal, you know, just five or six hours straight of rehearsal dance and say, you know, I, if I don't get something to eat right now, I'm going to bite somebody's head off. Like, that's not normal. And we have normalized this idea that, you know, you should be slung up on your blood sugar, dropped off and then, oh, let's do it again. Right. Let's see how many times we can do it during the day. Um, and that is one that's completely changed with this lifestyle is, you know, your meals are sustainable to the next meal, right? Um, and actually, it's not that different. I grew up in a family that said, don't snack because you'll ruin your meal. And somehow, you know, from the era of the dietary guidelines, and again, I'm not a researcher, I'll leave that to the brilliancy of Taubes and Schultz, and it sounds like Jade Buxton as well now. Um, but from that period on, it, it sort of like encouraged people to just eat all the time and it doesn't work. Yep. That's right. Um, I love Jason Fung, how he talks about like the little kids, like soccer match, like they can't even go out and play a simple soccer match without like Gatorade and, you know, maybe fruit. I, when I was growing up, it was at least like orange slices that you had to eat, but now it's just all kinds of processed crap. Like these kids don't need to be eating all of this stuff. They're just playing around. They're playing a game. Yeah. It is, is very true. And it is very sad because they don't have a chance. Right. Um, one of the fabulous teachers in the Noakes Foundation, um, coach practitioner path is Bitten Janssen. Um, she's the um, uh, sugar, I, I call her the sugar addiction specialist. Um, and she said, you know, what we're battling is that this indoctrination, right? At a very young age, you start getting incredible amounts of sugar. 
right? And then as that dependency comes along, you need more of it, right? And then you need more of it. Um, and that's just going to be a constant, a constant battle. Um, and one of the things I feel most proud about with some of my clients is to, is this feeling to, like we talked about at the beginning, take charge of your health is once you can get yourself away from that need to snack all the time, it's very liberating. So liberating. Right? You know, you, to go, wow, you know, I don't have to pack a bag full of stuff. You know, when I was dancing on the tour, I, people used to joke about me. I'm five foot two, I'm around hundred pounds that my bag was bigger than me, right? Because I, you know, again, this hangry, hungry a lot, you, you, you hoard food, right? You want to make sure you got all the stuff in your bag and, you know, that you've got like your food for two days. I don't need that anymore, right? You know, you have a meal, you wait to the next meal. The next fitness professional that we are going to hear from is Bronson Dant. Bronson is a personal trainer who owns his own personal training studio and is the author of The Ultimate Ketogenic Fitness Book, A Complete Guide to Optimizing Keto for a Better Quality of Life. He is somebody we love learning from. I love how he answers some of the questions here, especially when we talk about the difference between health and fitness and the difference between diet versus exercise to drive the best results for either one of those two things. Tell us, I, I, I've heard you answer this question before, and I think it's really important to distinguish. Can you tell us what your definition of fitness is? Oh, but my definition of fitness yes. is the, yes, the ability to express your physical ability, uh, your, your freedom through physical activity, right? So the ability to say, I am free. I live in a free country. I can do what I want to do. And I have the physical ability to do it. Mm. So that basically everything that I desire to do in my day fits into what I'm capable of doing. Absolutely. There is, I have nothing in my life that my physical conditioning, my health, because this is the key about this thing, right? Is fitness and health are the same thing. They are not different. There is no distinction between I'm improving my health and I'm improving my fitness. They are both the same. So my health is not going to the things that I can, let me rephrase that. The things that I can control about my health and my fitness are not limitations in my life. Mm. Yeah. I love that. That's a great definition. I know you work with, um, you know, fitness is what we consider maybe like the exercise portion of things. I know that fitness is not the best definition of that. It also includes mm -hmm. so many other things, but as you're weighing like the exercise portion of things versus the nutrition portion of things, how do you balance those two things out? They're equally important. Yeah. 50, 50, perfect. 50, 50 that you can't do one without the other. If you want to, if you want to improve your quality of life, you can do one without the other. If you're just worried about getting back to baseline. Okay. So nutrition, a lot of people start with nutrition. I did it backwards. I started with fitness. I'm a little bit odd. Um, a lot of people start with nutrition and they lose weight and think that now they're healthy. What they don't realize is they're, they're not unhealthy right? But they are also not optimized. There's a difference between coming to baseline, which means lacking um, illness, and then being able to perform and protect and increase your longevity and quality of life, which is different. So nutrition, I like to break it down into two ways. When we talk about stress, right? We talk about inflammation all the time. Inflammation is the big buzzword, right? Reduce inflammation, you're going to feel better, you're going to be better, you're going to be healthier. Um, nutrition helps you reduce 
internal stress, right? It's more of a biological internal function that helps you reduce chronic stress on the systems within your body, right? Um, fitness, the fitness component of, of improving your health helps you reduce and manage um, external stress. So it's more about the external things, the physiology of your body and how your body can deal with external stresses. So you can improve your health and, and get to where internal stress is less. But if you don't do anything to address how your body handles external stress, you will still feel the impact internally and vice versa. If your internal stress is off, you're going to feel it in the, in the external uh, manifestations of that and being tired and weak and, and all those other sorts of things. So they, they feed off of each other. You need to deal with both of them. Yeah, I love that. How has your understanding of nutrition changed over time? I know you said you do the carnivore diet and so did your mom for the last few years. Oh my how, gosh. How has everything evolved in the last little while? Yeah, how much time do you have? <laughs> as long as you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a client call uh, a couple of days ago and it, the, the entire call was basically um, just explaining to him that everything, it was, it was, it was kind of uh, crazy because he was talking about, you know, talking to this guy, he's got all these issues he's dealing with, with um, gut issues and IBS and ulcers and, and all sorts of things. And throughout the conversation, he kept mentioning that one day he decided he was just going to eat a steak and he felt great. He didn't have any pain at all that day. And then a couple months later, he's like, you know, I saw this guy on YouTube. He said he just was just eating eggs. So I tried a day where I just ate eggs. I felt great. So he kept saying all these things and then going back and saying, but that can't be right. What about my cholesterol? What about vitamins? What about this? What about that? And I just kind of looked at him. I said, you know, regardless of what you've been told and how we've all been educated over the years on what health food is, the definition of health food, eat the rainbow, you got to get your greens, blah, 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 all that stuff. If you're eating it, and it's not helping you get healthy, then it's not health food. That's probably the biggest thing that I've had to learn. And the biggest change is that just because modern society says something is so, if it doesn't do that for me, then it's not so. Mm. Yeah, it's super interesting. Over the last few years, coaching so many people who are trying to do the carnivore diet, it's almost like you're you're there just to give them permission. Like a lot of people already know, right. just yes. like this guy. Like he knows <laughs> he feels better. Like I eat a steak, I feel amazing. My symptoms get better. My energy goes up. My mental clarity and probably things like gratitude, spirituality, whatever else is improving. But I know that also my heart is going to blow up at some point. And so most of most of what I do with my people is like, no, I'm just giving you permission that you can follow this lead. You're going to be just fine and just make sure that you're still feeling really well because that's probably what's going to happen. Absolutely. hundred percent. hundred percent. Excellent. How long did it take for you to transition over to a carnivore diet? A day. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, uh, literally I started, so I heard about it, um, uh, uh late in April, uh, 2018, uh, listened to some videos, read up on it a little bit. And then decided May 1st, uh, May 1st, 2018, I said, I'm just going to do this and started doing it. So whatever meat we had in the house, I started just, that's what I ate. When that ran out, I went to the store and got more. Um, and just say, I haven't gone back since. 
Yeah, you were 13 months ahead of me, um, so I'm a little jealous. What things did you notice immediately that that felt better and and let you know that this is the way you should be eating for life? Um, I think the first thing was sleep. My sleep, with my sleep, instantly, almost almost instantly, got better. Um, before I realized that, so one of the reasons that I did it was because I had epic issues with my gut and my and my um, digestion. Um, within a few months, that was, it was probably even sooner than a few months, but I didn't really realize it because I was in such a habit of living my life a certain way around my digestive issues, um, that it took me a while to realize like, Hey, I'm going through all these hoops and whistles, uh, and trying to manage what could happen if I have to go to the bathroom somewhere. And, but I realized that none of it's ever happened. Like I haven't had to. Um, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, so, you know, I had my digestive issues basically ran my life and I hadn't even realized how much they had until I didn't have to deal with it anymore. Yeah. And that was uh, a couple to a few months. Wow. No, I've heard you describe that before. And that sounds, yeah. it, it sounds not only awful, but like borderline traumatic, frankly. Right. Well, it is, it's frustrating too. You know, when you're, especially when you're with a partner, and every time we got to do something, they've got to wait for you to go to the bathroom once. And then you get in the car and you're like, nah, I'm going to go back in and try again. And then you're in the car and you're halfway there and you're like, crap, we got to stop. I go to the back. Like it's, it's really ridiculous. Absolutely. It's, it's really ridiculous. Wow. No one should, no one should have to live that way. Yeah. That's so interesting. So over time, um, you know, a lot of people would say that if you're eating carnivore, yes, you're getting plenty of protein, but without getting a sufficient amount of carbohydrates, you're not going to be able to build muscle or your body's going to sacrifice protein for gluconeogenesis to produce the glucose that you need, even if it's, if it's a small amount. What has your experience been as far as muscle mass and carnivore diets or muscle mass in relation to, you know, having a zero carbohydrate intake? Yeah. So I, I don't, Anybody that says that you need carbs to build muscle um, is, I don't know. Honestly, I honestly don't know where that information came from. Because even when I looked it up years ago, I couldn't find anything that says you need carbs to build muscle. Um, because you don't. I mean, the only thing you need to build muscle is protein and proper stimulation of the muscle. So that's it. Um, my experience, uh, I've put on muscle over the past four years. I've improved my body composition. I've improved every single performance metric you can possibly think of from range of motion to endurance, to strength, to stamina. I mean, every aspect of fitness that you can think of, we talked about the 20 different components of, of health and fitness. Um, every single one over the past four years has improved. Wow. So I, yeah, carbs are not, here's the thing gluconeogenesis is a tool that your body uses, um, when it needs something. So if you need to do something that is glycolytic, it will provide glycogen for you to do it. You don't have to eat carbs in order for that to happen. Yeah, that's right. And when it does that, it provides the exact precise amount that you need. It almost seems like the preferred way the body would do that to keep, you know, blood yes. sugar perfectly in control. Well, here's the, here's the other thing that people may not know is that ketogenesis feeds gluconeogenesis, right? So the byproducts of ketones, right? Acetate, pyruvate, and lactate um, actually feed into the Cori cycle and the Krebs cycle. So they help the body fuel itself besides just BHB. So we talk about ketones all the time, get fat adapted, use ketones for fuel. BHB is pretty much the key component when we talk about that, but we don't, we don't talk about the fact that 
the byproducts of acetone, right, go into other cycles that fall under the umbrella of gluconeogenesis to provide fuel for the body to do other sorts of activities. Mm. Yeah, no. So they actually work with, they work with each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Another thing, and you can validate this because you've got a tool to, uh, available to you, which I do want to talk about in detail here in a minute. Um, but I mm-hmm. want, in your opinion, is it possible to lose fat and gain muscle at the same time? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> all the time. I do it. I do it. I see people do it all the time. Do you remember being told that that was not possible? Yeah, well, that was the second reason. So that was actually the second reason I went carnivore. Um, Cause I, I, you know, basically this, I started carnivore. It was a few months after the Baker Rogan um, interview. And that's what, where I was introduced to it. I heard that I listened to that interview um, somewhere in that something clicked in my head because, you know, again, thinking that I was a fitness guy, thinking that I was in shape and all of this stuff. Um, I really, you know, I was married at the time. I was out. I was married at the time to someone who was a nutritionist. Um, and we were very much in the traditional thought of bulking and cutting, right? If I want to get strong, I have to get fat. If I want to get lean, I have to get weak. And it was really frustrating to consistently be in this cycle of, I feel great about my strength and my capability, but I look like a marshmallow or I look fantastic and I feel great about my appearance, but I can't do squat because I'm weak as hell. Like I got really, I just got frustrated with that whole cycle. So that was the second, the second reason um, I was interested in carnivore because it intrigued me that I could potentially lose body fat and not lose my strength, right? Because here I am listening to Sean Baker, who's a world-class athlete talking about how his important, his performance has not decreased. He's gotten stronger and he's gotten leaner at the same time. And I'm like, well, I don't understand how that works. Um, Now I do. And I love it. And I, I understand it and I can explain it to people and, and I help people do it all the time. Brother, you and I had vastly different reactions to that episode of Joe Rogan. I, <laughs> I To this day, I've, I've mentioned this many times on our show. To this day, I have not finished that episode because I turned it off halfway through and said, this guy is absolutely insane. And I had to tell him that when I hosted him on our show, I told Sean Baker, Dr. Sean Baker, like, uh, sorry, I still haven't listened to your episode on, on Joe Rogan, even though it was like the most influential you know podcast I've ever listened to in my life. I don't listen to half of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. that's, that's such a great point. I can, I can totally relate to that. It's like one of the two, you're either leaning and you feel terrible or you feel really great, but you you have extra fat and you wouldn't imagine that you can optimize both at the same time when it's absolutely possible. I, I love yep. that your answer to the question was you laughing, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of the way I would react. We see it all the time. And you ask every right. dude, what is your goals? I want more muscle and less fat. It's like, well, I pretty much can help you with that pretty easily. It's absolutely. not going to be that hard. Yeah. Yep. Dude, yep. that's awesome. We love that content from Bronson. He's doing great work. And I'm so glad that we went there with that conversation, that we were both able to talk about using body fat scales that were able to validate the fact that, yes, you can add muscle mass and lose fat at the same time. You don't have to compromise on either one of those things. And I love that message. And I love that he's also out there sharing that message. We are now going to go to Lier Keith. This is somebody who did a plant-based, low-fat diet about as well as you possibly could. She was a vegetarian and vegan for the 
better part of two decades to the detriment of her health, which you are going to hear. The plant-based diet message is so enticing. It's really easy to get sucked up into without realizing how much damage it can do to people. We have talked to several people in this podcast who are fully carnivore or, or if not fully carnivore, fully strict carnivore, they are very much of an animal-based diet, getting a, a most of their calories from saturated fat and proteins that come from animals. And I just want you to pay attention to how she's describing that she was feeling when she was vegetarian and vegan versus how all the other people that we've talked to have talked about how they feel eating a more animal-based diet. Leah Keith is such a badass. We absolutely love her and her work. We've interviewed her twice. This is from the original conversation we had um, almost two years ago now, back in episode 67, with my wife Bethany actually jumping in as the co-host as well. A criticism that I hear quite often is that when somebody gets off of a vegan diet, it's because they didn't really try hard enough. And so I'm just going to throw that right at you. I know your story. I, I don't think you really tried that hard. I mean, sure. did you really give it a fair shake, Lier? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that, you know, what's really funny about that is that there are, in fact, people, I think especially a lot of young men who don't know how to cook. And when they go vegan, they just take a bunch of stuff out, but they don't really know how to provide for themselves in any way. Wow. And they really do just become junk food vegans. And I've met them and they eat cookies and potato chips and soda all day long. And of course, that's not going to work for anybody. Um, but I think most people who go vegan really do try. And most of us enjoy cooking, you know, like we're into food and we're into the whole concept. And sure. for me, I mean, I, it, I mean, I had like charts on my refrigerator that were about how to combine your proteins and, you know, like what was in kidney beans and what was in brown rice. And I was so insane. I mean, I wouldn't touch, like I wouldn't eat ketchup if there was sugar in it. I was so opposed to eating white sugar and I never ate white flour. I mean, that was the whole 20 years. I literally never ate a piece of white bread. Um, wow. No white rice, certainly. It was absolutely whole beans, whole grains, you know, is you know, and all, I mean, it was just, and back then, cause this, I mean, I started this in like 1980. Um, the, the thing that they didn't have all of those soy based meat analogs, which are highly processed poisons, but none of that existed. Like you couldn't go to the store and buy like tempeh bacon and like those fake bologna slices and the weird vegan cheese and all of those you know, easy fast food kind of vegan things that they have now, none of that existed. So wow. if you were going to do this, you really, really had to cook wow. and you had to cook rice and beans. Like that's pretty much what we ate, you know, with vegetables, of course, but you know, the bulk of the food was, you know, some kind of rice and some kind of bean. Um, and so it, it, I mean, it was in some ways healthier than what they have now because sure. with all that, I mean, the soy milk alone is just deadly. Um, and then none of that existed. Like I remember the first time seeing soy milk in a grocery store and just of course being thrilled because sure. I was a vegan, but, um, I, it would have been worse, I think for me, if all of that stuff had existed. And so, I mean, all of this is to say is I did it as whole food and natural and whatever, you know, that you want to, that anybody could have done it. Right. Um, and it just was a disaster. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. I think if, if there's one person on this planet that can write this book, it's absolutely you. I mean, I heard you talking about like frying tofu and vegetable oil. I almost like gagged oh, yeah. on, like, oh, that sounds <laughs> terrible. So you started back in 1980. Uh, let's see. I was 16. So, um, yeah, it was 1980, 1981. Yeah. Mm. Would have been early 1981. Yeah. What was it that got you to start trying it? 
Well, I got into it in the way that most people get into it, which is you meet somebody who's already doing it and you are convinced. So I was converted. I, I met another teenage girl whose family, they were all vegans. They were super into being vegans. They had in fact moved to Boston to be with other vegans so that, I mean, it was just vegan, vegan, vegan. So I entered that whole world. And, and at that point, it was such a small little community that you got to know everybody really quickly. But, you know, there's definitely, when you do extreme things, it's, it you in many, many realms, you can end up in these sort of cult-like little cul-de-sacs. And that is where I ended. You know, if you're only talking to people who believe these things, it's, when it starts to fail you, it's really hard to get out because mm. it's an echo chamber. You know, it's, this is certainly not the only little subculture that does this, but uh, that's where I ended. And we you know when all your friends are doing it and you there's nobody can question it because, you know, you know, you're going to lose everyone and everyone's going to get mad at you. And, you know, we you all just it's just this constant reinforcement that, you know, oh, do it this way. Try it that way. Go and do this instead. You'll be fine. There's no way this is wrong. And then one by one, people fall out because, of course, it doesn't work. And eventually the rubber does hit the road. And one by one, all of those people had to start eating animal products. And I was the last holdout. I mean, wow. it was like, I was just so extreme, you know, because I couldn't give it up until it, I was half dead. But, you know. 16, too. That's such a developmental, formative year, especially for a female. That's what kinds, of, what kinds of consequences did your body suffer from that? My poor brain. I feel like it never quite myelinated correctly, you know. Um that's the thing. That's one of the things that happens when you're a teenager is it's all of that myelin, all of that sheathing has to happen in the brain. And, it, you know, your, your frontal lobes go offline for a while, which is why teenagers are a little bit crazy. Um, but then, you know, it, it all has to kind of reconnect itself. And all of that is based on animal fat and protein. I mean, that's what your brain is. Um, and it's really slightly disturbing still to think about, I might be a different person if I had done this even a little bit later in life. <laughs> But I had immediately had all those problems that vegans have. So the depression, the anxiety, um, you know, that just terrible kind of ennui, exhausted feeling in that fog in your brain. And I, you, you get used to it, you know, because it doesn't come on the first day. It may take a few months, even a few years, depending on how good, you know, your background nutrition has been for your life. And you don't realize that it's not normal. You just think, well, this is how life is. But I mean, to give you one example, this was a constant, you know, for 20 years. If I couldn't find my house keys or my wallet, I would end up in a puddle on the floor just crying. Like there's the, the, the level, you just, there's no balance in your brain. There's, there's, there's no give, like the tiniest little thing happens and you have no resources left to use to just deal with something as silly as I'm like, where did I put my damn keys? And so it's that kind of thing. And and then, you know, those those rages and the you just fall off the cliff, you know, just every every day, pretty much. I had a, I met a young guy much later who you know had read my book and had been through very similar things. And so he was a vegan for two years. And by the end of it, he had OCD. He had suicidal depression, like just every horrible emotional problem that he had never had before. But he had moved to Portland, Oregon to, of course, be with the vegans. And he was working in a vegan bakery. And this is the point. Every day, starting at two o'clock, vegans would come into the this little bakery and buy like these. They had these giant cookies that had two inches of icing on them. It was essentially pure sugar. And they would be desperate, of course, because their blood sugar has completely crashed. 
and they would be waiting in line to get this, you know, this wad of sugar, essentially. And there was always at least one person crying. Sometimes somebody would be screaming. There was always every single day, one person crying. And he would go home every night and say to his girlfriend, there's something wrong with us. Like, I know this isn't normal, but I can't quite figure out what has gone so wrong. Um, You know, eventually he got out, but it, that was it. Like that was my life. I completely understand now what happened to my brain, but at the time you you just don't know. And it just feels normal. And of course, when all your friends are doing it too, it, everybody just keeps saying, yeah, this is, this is just life. And of course, when you're young, you really don't know better. It's not like I'd had 20 years of adulthood. And then when it starts to fall off the edge, you're like, yeah, this isn't right. I mean, I started as a teenager where you're already a little bit crazy. So yeah, I'm, it, the brain, my poor brain. I'm really sorry for it. <laughs> and then big I'm pharma so just keeps working off of the anxiety and depression and has endless supplies yeah. of different medications. People can get themselves on, get further down the rabbit hole. That's so crazy. Wow. And there's so many, I mean, I think we all know people who with better nutrition, they start to understand you need full fat animal products every day, a huge chunk of them. And it's amazing how even within a week or two, people feel dramatically better. And then in a month or two, they can start getting off some of those meds. And, you know, it's like this little miracle that people can produce in their own lives just by eating grass-fed butter and some grass-fed beef. Like it makes a huge difference. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. You said something really important in there that people like, it's not just, this is what I eat. It's I am X. You know, like it's not, it's not, it's not just food. It couldn't just be food. This is my entire way of life. This is what I believe. This is my ideology. I'll do any mental gymnastics to keep the cognitive, you know, dissonance going. And, and the hard, really tough thing is like, they're, you're doing it for the very best of reasons. Generally speaking, it comes from really great intentions. Like, like it's, it's admirable. Yeah. So the thing about being a vegan is it is never just a diet. It is almost entirely, it becomes your identity. So it's your whole sense of self is wrapped up in this. And the problem with embracing something that deeply is that when it comes time to deal with information that is perhaps new and different, that is in some way threatening to that ideology, you can't handle it. It's, it's too terrifying. So this is again, where you get into those sort of cult-like situations where you just cannot engage. Mm. Um, And in in my life, that, I mean, that really went on for 20 years because I never stopped being passionately interested in trying to figure out why were humans destroying the planet? Where did this start? Why are we doing it? What is the mechanism? You know, like, what is that? Like, what's the progress of this? Like, what's the moment when humans decided to do this stuff? What is it called? You know, how is how does it function? So I was like always engaged in this kind of research and doing my own experiments, like trying to grow food and all this. And I couldn't face the answers that I was finding because they ran completely counter to what I thought was true, you know, speaking as a vegan. And so, I, I mean, literally it was the angel I wrestled for 20 years. Wow. And one of the good things about finally having to give up, you know, that that whole way of life was that. I could finally take a look at all that information that I had gathered, both, as I say, experientially, and then also, 
you know, just all the books I'd been trying to read and then I couldn't finish them because it was too disturbing. And like, I didn't know how to make it all come together. And finally, when I was able to just put down the vegan identity, it was like, okay, I actually do have some answers. I do actually know I have managed to accumulate some information here and I need to put it together in a framework. And then I did that and life was better again. But I mean, it is a really hard year or two. Anybody who comes out of that world, it you you don't know what's stable. It's like the universe has collapsed around you. You don't know who you are. You don't know what your place is in the cosmos. You, you just have no idea what's right and what's wrong and what's up and what's down. And it is really, it's very, very hard. And if you've lost all your friends on top of it, um, it's a tough time. I mean, it, I, I answer these emails all the time, like almost every day where it's some poor person who has crawled out half dead and then doesn't know what to do. And it, it's oh, just heartbreaking. It's so, so sad. It's so it sad. is. Luckily, there's, there's a much better world now that you can fall into that, you know, people who understand ancestral nutrition, who have a, a bigger analysis about what agriculture is and what it's done to the planet and how whatever your values are about compassion and sustainability, that actually being a vegan is not the best way to institute those values. So we have a whole other world out here that's, full and bountiful and loves animals and wants to repair the planet. And you can enter that world instead and you will be happier and healthier and actually do something good. Yeah. Um, so that's the good part, but it's not an easy emotional experience for anybody. There's, I mean, nobody gives this up easily. Once you're in, you're in, I mean, wow. you're committed. So you, in your personal story, you, your, you know, journey as a vegan kind of comes to an end. What was that like? Mm -hmm. What things got, got kind of cleared up and fixed pretty quickly and what things linger on? All right. Well, so the problems I got um, immediately, I had blood sugar issues. Of course, I didn't have a word for that. Uh, all I knew was that as time went on, I was increasingly um, hungry all the time, shaking, crying, uh, that just incredible urge to eat that it's it's unbearable. Like until you put food in your mouth, you feel like you're dying. And that is true because your blood sugar is either too low or too high. And that's what happens when you eat a load of sugar three, four, five times a day, you're going to be on that roller coaster constantly. So that happened really quickly. Um, and I didn't know what it was, but I remember the first few times it happened because I had never experienced that before. And I didn't have words for it. It was like, wow, I feel really sick and I'm shaking and I'm sweating. And I know if I eat, I feel, I'll feel better. And I don't know why. Um, and I ate a cookie a vegan cookie. And I felt of course better, but that's the roller coaster right there. So that happened. Um, I also, I have three autoimmune diseases now. Um, and the first one that I got was Hashimoto's, but it took probably 20 years for me to get a real diagnosis on that. So I was increasingly exhausted and did not know why. So the thyroid thing is really common among vegans. Wheat is very, very hard on the thyroid and we know that soy kills it. So your basic vegan diet is probably going to give you thyroid problems, especially if you're a Absolutely. woman. So I got the, I got the Hashimoto's thing. Um, so that happened. I also ended up with, um, a condition called gastroparesis. My stomach does not make enough hydrochloric acid anymore. And I understand now what happened, but at the time I did not know what it was. All I knew was that I felt sick pretty much all the time. Um, so this sort of semi-constant nausea, and it's because if you don't have enough hydrochloric acid, your stomach just can't really empty. So I lived with that for a good long time, like decades. Uh, that got a lot better once I had a diagnosis and was able to start taking betaine hydrochloride with meals, but I didn't know that. And again, that comes back to that blood sugar roller coaster because when your insulin is too high, 
um, or I'm sorry, when your blood sugar is too high, your pancreas, it's an emergency. It's a biological emergency. And your pancreas will release this flood of insulin. It's a very blunt instrument. And this is one way you can see that we were not meant to eat a diet essentially of sugar because we can't handle it. So you get this flood of insulin and insulin grabs every single thing that it can that's floating around in your bloodstream and shoves it into your fat cells for storage as fast as it can. And this is so that your brain doesn't die because we can only exist within a very narrow range of blood sugar. If it's too high or too low, you, you can fall into a coma and die. So it's an emergency. So insulin is the response and it grabs everything into the cells for storage so that you don't die. But the problem, of course, is that it does too much. It doesn't, it doesn't know, like there's no balance here. It doesn't know how to judge whether it's too much or too little. So what happens next is your blood sugar is too low. And that's when that crying, shaking, sweating, I'm going to die if I don't eat feeling washes over you. And the, it doesn't, compulsion doesn't even begin to describe it. Like you've got to eat. So then you eat. And if you're a vegan, what you're eating, I don't care if it's quote a you know whole grain or a complex carbohydrate. If it makes you feel better to call it that, go ahead. You can eat that stuff. By the time it's done in your intestines, it has been broken down into simple sugars because that's how our, the digestive tract works. So you've just eaten another load of sugar. Congratulations. So your blood sugar goes back up and you feel a little bit better, but guess what? Now it's too high again. In comes the insulin out goes everything. Now your blood sugar is too low. And you will go through that cycle repeatedly throughout the day as a vegan over and over and over. Uh, it'll happen faster and faster because you're wearing out your insulin receptors. You, you, we really are not meant to absorb that level of sugar every day. Um, so as the years go by, I mean, it was by the time I was done, I was probably eating every half an hour, every 20 minutes. It's just semi-constant. I had to put a little piece of food in my mouth not to feel sick. And then you realize what you've done and you stop. And it's this amazing two or three days where for the first time in your life, you feel clear headed like because you're not on that constant, constant roller coaster. But one of the other um, substances that your body produces when you have that, that surge of insulin is adrenaline. Um, and it's another way that your body is trying to keep you alive. So if we can shove all this sort of excess sugar into your muscles really quickly, maybe you'll burn it off and then you know, the brain won't die. And that's sort of the theory, I guess, that your 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 body is going on. But all that adrenaline, three, four, five times a day, it, it can't be done. I mean, you're just, you're going to wear out. I mean, you're going to, adrenal fatigue is coming. But the other thing that you wear out is your capacity to make digestive enzymes. Because what adrenaline does is it shuts down your digestive system. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, if a lion is coming at you and you need to run, um, what you want is all the energy to go to those big muscles so you can either do fight or flight. But what that means is we have to shut down digestion so that all the energy can go to your muscles. So immediately it shuts down your body's capacity to digest food. Um, and sometimes if the fright is bad enough, I mean, we all know people can, you know, you pee your pants or, you know, you have some kind of release there that's no fun for anyone, but that can happen under really high stress situations, soldiers, you know, people in really life threatening situations. And that's why it's your body is getting ready to run or fight, like dump everything you don't need. Now you're ready to go. And that's adrenaline. That's what it does. So you're instigating that in your own body over and over and over throughout the day when you eat those high carb diets. So you do that for 10, 20 years, like I did, 
and you have permanently damaged your your body's capacity to produce those digestive enzymes that you need, like the like the hydrochloric acid. I I just can't make it anymore, so I have to take this other stuff, you know, externally. But it really works. So and it's better. It got better, but it took time. Mm. It, I'm nowhere near as. I mean, that was bad. Um, so. And that may take, I mean, I, I remember asking that particular doctor, well, how long am I going to have to take this? And he just laughed. He's like, you and Betaine are going to be friends for a long time. I'm like, All right. Well, luckily you don't need a prescription. Anybody can buy it. But if you are one of those people who's coming out of one of these kind of high carb diet situations and you find yourself being really nauseated all the time, that's the go-to. Try Betaine hydrochloride. You can buy it like at any natural food store. They'll have it. It's over the counter, really easy supplement. You can't really hurt yourself with it. Just try it for a day or two. If you feel better, you know that's the issue. So I did that. I felt nauseated for you know 25 years or something. Um, and then, uh, as is very common with women on low-fat diets of any kind, um, I completely messed up my reproductive organs and my reproductive cycle. I almost never got a period that whole 20 years. No doctor could explain to me what had gone wrong. Um, I ended up with really bad uterine fibroids, and I'm naming the soy. I can't prove it, obviously, but that's my guess because, of course, soy does that. So I, I had to have an operation to have the fibroids removed. Um, but also the uh, the thing that was so striking to me was, you know, after that whole 20 years of just being like, I don't know, I just don't seem to have very regular periods. I almost never get one. And then, you know, I found all this information. I flipped my diet all around. It started to stabilize pretty quickly, but the real catch was when I took soy out of the diet, which I went cold turkey. Once I had read all that information about like how terrifying soy was, that this was a drug, not a food. I mean, you get that cold chill of horror, like, what have I done? And I went absolutely cold turkey. I'm never going to eat this again. I threw everything out. I'm not going to eat it. And about two weeks later, I got a period and literally didn't miss one again until I hit menopause. Wow. It was 28 days, 28 days, like clockwork. I mean, you could have set the nuclear clock to it. It was that regular. Wow. This was after 20 years of just being completely random and bizarre. I, I, it was stunning. I mean, even I was stunned. Just like that was so dramatic. Wow. And it was absolutely, the low fat helped, but the soy was the real kicker. Don't eat soy. Do not eat soy. Do not touch soy. Whatever else people who are listening, whatever else you decide to do or not do with your life, do not eat soy. The number one thing is take the soy out of your diet. It is absolutely poison to animals. It's like none of us should be eating it. The same thing happens to farm animals. The same thing happens to dogs. Like do not. It's just yep. we shouldn't be eating it. Just stop. It's just completely messes with you. Men and women, everybody. Nobody needs those phytoestrogens. Do not do it. And the reason that soy makes phytoestrogens is exactly that reason. Plants fight back. They don't want to be eaten either. And so... The way that they keep you from eating their babies is they wrap their seeds in all kinds of anti-nutrients and even toxic poisons. But for soy, it's been very clever throughout the millennia that it's existed. It said, fine, you can try to eat my babies, but I will make sure you don't reproduce. <laughs> yep. Wow. And so you eat soy, you're not going to get a baby. I could not have had a baby. There's nothing. That, I mean, it was... I mean, it, and for my life, it's not actually it was not actually a tragedy because I had decided that I probably wasn't going to have children, and that's fine. But if I had wanted to have a baby, that would have been utter heartbreak. But that's why. And a lot of people um, who take up kind of the vegetarian worldview, and I did this myself, so I'm not saying this in an accusatory way. I'm just saying it as this was the worldview that I tried to adopt. And 
I struggled with it a lot because the idea was animals are worthy of moral consideration and they're sentient beings like us. And I want to care about what happens to them because they suffer and I don't want there to be animal suffering, but we're still drawing a line. And the line is between animals and all the other living creatures. So all we've done is kind of shift that line one category down. But when you're a vegan, you still think that plants are just insensate salads and bacteria certainly don't get any notice. So everything that's keeping the soil alive, you don't even know the name for it. Mm. And literally the entire cycle of life depends on those creatures. Um, And so none of that matters. What matters is the creatures who are like us in certain ways. And those ways are essentially, does it have a mother? Does it have a face? And I used to say that all the time. If it has a mother or a face, I'm not going to eat it. But everything else is fair game because they don't count. They're not conscious. They don't suffer. They don't feel. They don't communicate. They're just kind of there. Um, And I struggled with that because a lot of times when you get into arguments with people who aren't vegan, they would bring that up, you know, and it always felt like this sort of gotcha. But I didn't have an answer. You know, they would say, ha ha, like you think animals count. Well, what about plants? And it would really get my back up because I wanted to care about plants. As it turns out, I've actually had conversations with plants. Like I know they're alive. And the more you learn about how plants communicate and care for each other and build communities um, and how they fight for their lives, like they are incredible chemical warfare experts it's because they can't run what they do instead is chemical messages is how they talk to each other and then they are able to fight off all kinds of attacks from animals by using various toxic chemicals i mean that's what tobacco does that's like what soy does they have all kinds of ways to do that um and then just learning about like you know right now i live in the redwoods and the, the the shape of redwood needles is perfectly designed you know by evolution over time there's a lot of fog here on the California coast and redwood trees are really good at turning fog into actual water. So they capture the fog with the shape of their needles. And then it comes down as little drops of water every single morning as the fog rolls in off the ocean. I know it's beautiful. And, but even more, the water that they use, they only use about one third of the water that they collect. The other two thirds is for all the other plants. (laughs) So nature loves the community and there's not a single creature that you could find and discuss that wouldn't have some feature like that where they are taking care of each other because that's what life is, is literally a web of creatures helping each other. And that also involves eating each other. It means we are feeding each other. And this is what I tried to get out of as a vegan and you can't get out of it. Every single thing you eat was alive once it loved its life. It communicated with its friends. It had a family, you know, all of it. And plants, animals, bacteria, whatever level of the trophic purity you want to look at, all of them are alive. All of them deserve our, you know, some kind of moral quantification. Like they, they all matter. And in fact, the little tiny ones that we can't see are really the ones that are necessary. We are not. Mm, <laughs> we can't right. have a planet without them. So all of that was just like, it was really hard for me as a vegan to handle it. And then you know, again, when I came out, I was finally able to say, oh, thank God, plants matter too. I love plants. I know they're alive. And then the more I understood about plant sentience, I mean, you just have to be in awe about the things they know and the things they do and how much they communicate and how they build forests and how they build prairies and how the, you know, the first ones call the other ones to them. 
Like they literally call seeds to them. We don't know how it happens, but they do it. So they're, they're just, they're extraordinary. So, and there are people who now call themselves things like plant neurobiologists because they're able to study how plants think and how plants respond and how plants communicate. They are just as sentient as you, you and I. And so I'm very, very grateful that I don't have to draw that line anymore and sort of live this contradiction where I can just say all of life, it's all of us. We all matter. We're all here. We're all in it together. Um, and that includes plants. But anyway, plants fight back. So um, yeah, you're going to wreck yourself if you eat too many of them because they know that you're coming for them and they have defenses. So oh, yep. another, another problem is, um, so especially when you're eating like whole grains and whole beans, uh, a lot of plants have anti-nutrients. So for instance, we mentioned the phytoestrogens, but soy and other grains also have what are called phytates or phytic acid. Um, and these are enzymes that in animal digestive tracts, they will block the absorption of minerals. So if you're eating whole grains and think you're doing a good thing, you're actually not. You're making your bones and your teeth weaker every time you eat. Um, and so, you know, as a vegan, um, I was only eating whole grains and whole beans and I destroyed my spine. Um, I have really severe degenerative disc disease. Um, and in my lumbar spine. And that started about two years into being a vegan. So I was 18 years old and my spine was coming to pieces and nobody knew why. Of course, the doctors aren't trained in nutrition, so nobody even knew to ask me. But in the aftermath to all of this, you know, when I tried to figure out, okay, how did this all go so wrong? Stumbling upon all of this other information that I never looked at as a vegan, it became quite clear what I had done. So in order to absorb minerals, you have to have enough good quality fat in your diet because that's how mineral digestion works in human bodies. So right away, without the fat, I wasn't going to absorb. But the second problem, of course, is that what I was eating was completely blocking any minerals that I was managing to get because of the phytates. So every time I ate whole wheat and whole brown rice and thought I was doing the right thing, I was just making it worse. Lierre is the best in the business at being able to explain the science behind things while interlacing it with a story, in that case, her own personal story of using a vegetarian and vegan diet for uh, over two decades and everything that went wrong with her health. Not only was she able to explain what happened to her, but she's able to explain what is going on in the body and the science behind it. We absolutely love that. If you haven't already, go check out The Vegetarian Myth. Her book is absolutely amazing. You can listen to it or read it. Um, I've done both and it was absolutely life-changing to hear that message and to hear her explain why the plant-based uh, message and plant-based diet is not best for us or the planet or is not even best ethically. Really interesting stuff there. We have one more story that we are going to listen to. And that last story to wrap up this ketogenic series is uh, my own personal story. So we're going to go to an episode that I did with Dr. Sarah Zaldivar. She posted this episode on her channel on YouTube. So there was no audio content that lived in podcast land. So what I did is I just took it and, and made it into an audio podcast, put it on Body Radio on episode 313 and so that people could listen to it or watch it if they wanted. 
As I have been getting more and more involved in this space, in the ketogenic world, I've been putting out the podcast and really working hard to get this message out. I'm starting to realize that I have a unique perspective that not a lot of other people have when we're talking about how people came to find low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets. Recently, one of my clients was reaching out to ask if I had any specific episodes about people who are measuring metabolism and what would happen to the metabolism when people started eating low carbohydrate or ketogenic diets. And I was scrolling through all of the different episodes and it took me a little while before I realized like, wait, the, the best person <laughs> to tell this story and to help share information about this is actually me. I don't know a lot of people in this space that had the ability to experience what I experienced, actually working on a metabolic cart for the better part of 15 years to measure metabolism and, and seeing what was going on with that was really life-changing and it's what really started my obsession into low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets. It's just a different perspective. It's an interesting way to get involved in all of this. And so enjoy my story of how I found ketogenic and low carbohydrate diets. But I went to school to study architecture. I thought I wanted to be an architect. So um, I was doing that in school. But at the time, I also joined a big box gym, uh, basically to train for the off-season of cycling. And as I was in that big box gym, I started watching some of the personal trainers and thought like, wow, this is really fun. These guys look like they're having a really good time. They're working with people one-on-one. -on -one. They're showing them the right exercises. They were also using heart rate monitors at the time, which was something that I had been using for several years. And I saw that that was a tool that they were using. So I decided this looks great. Let me see what I need to do to be a personal trainer. So I walked into the manager's office. He showed me what, um, what certification to get online. And so I did that. And a few months later, I got hired on as a personal trainer with zero experience. And that was the end of architecture. I never went back to school for any of that. Um, and I got to kind of train my people. So that was, that was really fun. And that was back in 2007 when I first started. <clears throat> So back then, we didn't really have a huge focus on nutrition. Everybody knew how to kind of eat well, which was you eat lots of vegetables, you have lots of whole grains, you know, keep your proteins lean. So a lot of the trainers were eating every two to three hours, lots of salads and chicken. And that was all just fine back then. A lot of the nutrition I had been exposed to is more from like the bodybuilding world. And so lots of brown rice, lots of broccoli, again, chicken breasts and things like that. Um, and right. when... <laughs> you know, classic stuff um, that we've all eaten way too much of. And um, anyway, through through my career, I eventually got trained to work on metabolic carts. And so these are the machines and equipment that basically we can hook up to people. Basically, we attach a mask that's collecting their respirations. And the respirations can tell us all kinds of different information about the calories they were burning. It could tell us about where the calories were coming from, whether they were burning more fat or carbohydrates. You know, most people would recognize like a VO2 max test where they know how much they can breathe at their maximum, where their heart rate zones are. Um, we could also use resting metabolic tests. So how many calories do you burn just to be yourself and sit in a chair? And so we were using that information to help give people training programs and heart rate zones. And, you know, back then we would look at metabolism exactly the way that most people see metabolism, calories in, calories out. So you come in, you do a test with me, we measure and we find out that you burn 1500 calories a day, just being you not doing anything other than sitting in a chair and you know, you have your job and that's going to burn another 400 calories. And then if you work out on top of that, that's going to burn another few hundred calories. And so most people obviously coming to us for weight loss, we would use those numbers and say, okay, you burn a total of 2300 calories a day. So let's have you eat 500 calories less every single day. So let's have you eat 1800 calories. And by the math, 
you know, 500 calories multiplied by seven days is 3,500, which is one pound of fat. And so we would say, okay, by the end of this week one, you should lose one pound. And by week two, you should lose two pounds. And by week three, it's your total of three pounds and so on and so forth. But it never worked that way. Like everybody we ever put through that, they would lose a lot of weight in the beginning, but then the weight loss would slow down. We would notice that our people would become a little bit more tired, a little cranky. Um, they would have less and less willpower. They'd be super motivated in January, but as the weeks wore on and the weight loss is stalling right. and now they're feeling terrible, have, you know, cravings for things, their energies in the toilet. It's way more tempting to binge on, you know, 10 donuts in the break room or whatever. And so as many people as we put through those protocols, we just noticed that things were not really working very well in the way that we, you know, were telling people they should work. And then as trainers, we would just turn around and, you know, do the Jason Fung thing, blame the victim. We're going to blame you for not following our advice. I told you to do that 500 calorie run on the treadmill and eat 500 calories less and you can't do it. Well, you suck. Like you need better willpower. You need to stick with it. This is why you've gained so much weight. Did you say the Jason Fung thing? Yeah. So Dr. Jason Fung talks about this all the time in the obesity code and he calls it blaming the victim. And it's like, oh, okay. we don't, we don't yeah, ever, I know that he, he's not blaming the victim. So you just want to let everybody, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Jason Fung is a good resource. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Good clarification. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it was, it was several years of doing that and, and not having our clients get very good results was just kind of frustrating, but it, it was what it was. We didn't know any other way. And it was in 2012, our company did a call with a contractor who's doing the same kind of testing that we were doing. And he was working with endurance athletes, which I was a cyclist. Um, so I was interested in endurance, but he, in this call, he was describing how he could change people's metabolism, especially while they exercise by changing the diet. And this is, this is mind blowing to me at the time. I had no idea you could do that and you could improve somebody's fat burning, for example, which would then make an endurance athlete be able to last much longer. Um, you have a very limited storage of sugar in the body and that runs out and most endurance athletes know that you bonk, you run out of energy all, all of a sudden. And so this guy was saying that he was feeding his athletes high fat things that I thought were, you know, completely off the table for what you should be eating. So heavy cream and butter and bacon. And he's describing these top level, like professional triathletes competing at the highest levels, only taking in, you know, less than 60 or 70 calories on the bike every single hour, which was complete opposite of everything that we'd been told at the time. You had to eat lots of sugar while you were biking, or again, you'd run out of energy. So that was the first time that it was ever introduced to me that nutrition could make a difference in metabolism and metabolic rate. Um, I, the next stage, I remember um, we, we acquired two new trainers who started saying that eat fat to get fit. It was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Eat fat to get fit. That's not a thing. And they talked about healthy fat. Like what the hell is health? There's no healthy fat. Like all fat is bad, <laughs> of course. And so, right. you know, we started putting olive oil on things and had avocados every now and again, and energy was better. And so that started to kind of open up the, like different possibilities of how nutrition really could affect people. Um, you know, I came across Nina Teichel's book, the big fat surprise and how influential that was in my career. And, and really all of this to say like what we were doing, what we were told to do was not working. It just flat wasn't working. People couldn't do it. And if they did, it didn't produce the result that we wanted it to. So everybody quit. And so we started to find this other thing that nobody was talking about and it started to work for people. And that's kind of how I got introduced into, okay, maybe fat is okay in the diet and can actually help people. 
Wonderful. And it's so great to hear that. And I think also you weren't, you didn't go through um, like the whole nutrition brainwashing thing. Like, cause I feel for me, Hey, it took me like way too long, way too long to come around, you know? Um, and I kept just applying it to myself, applying it to myself and then it just would not work. And it was really, it was like I mentioned on the podcast where you had me on, I was tell, I was talking about just how difficult it was for me to finally understand that everything that I was taught was wrong. So I'm so glad. I, I know it still was a process for you because you still were taught the opposite things, but at least, you know, you, you were applying it at maybe a faster rate with a lot more clients as opposed to like just on you. And you could see that that simply wasn't working for pretty much most people. Um, so, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that more and more people in this field are are realizing and seeing through all the BS and all of the misinformation that we've been given. I, I don't like I mean, we can dive into why all of this is happening and I have my thoughts on it, but uh, I want to continue on with your background and um, try to see, did you apply this to yourself? Like, what was your personal experience with that? Yeah, definitely. And you you bring up such a good point when you're talking about like learning this one way. And I was fortunate enough not to have to go through the medical system in that way because you you have to undo, but you're, you're sitting there thinking like, how, how I must be wrong. That's, I, I, there's no way that... All of the, the nutrition guidelines, the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, every nutrition book I've ever read, there's no way that all of them could be wrong about this. It, it blows your mind. It's it's so crazy. So part of, part of what we had to do with the company that we were with was we would have to do weight loss challenges. So the company started offering um, two times a year they would do, it was called the 90-day challenge. It was a three-month weight loss contest. And as personal trainers, you know, you've, you've worked as a trainer before, you know, it's, it's, you're on the grind. It's hundred percent commission. It's a lot of work, a lot of sales. And as trainers, we were, you know, we had numbers we were expected to hit and we had to fill people up to do these contests with us and buy our services. And the company figured out really quickly that if people signed up for these programs, they would make a lot of money. So it wasn't very long before they said, well, we're doing 90 day contests twice a year. Why don't we do 60 day contests and do them four times a year? And sure enough, they made a lot of money doing that. And so as trainers, we'd be responsible to sign people up, um, do a consultation with them, weigh them in the first time we would give them, you know, the company's packet of, you know, hundred different recipes and exotic shopping lists with ingredients you've never heard of before and all the meal plans and preps. And here's your instructions and here's all these events that you're going to do. And it just, again, the compliance on a program like that was so low. It, like we, we would calculate it and it would be like in the teens, like 15% of the people who started the contest would actually show up at the very end of the contest to weigh out. And, and all what the while it was, it was very low. It was somewhere in the teens. 15 is an estimate, but yeah, it was wow. literally okay. not very, low. very low, yeah. not more than 20%. And, and, I'm talking successfully or unsuccessfully, just looking at if I weighed you in at the start, did you even show up to weigh out at the very end, whether you lost or gained or whatever? So again, as a trainer, you're frustrated because, yeah. you know, these people aren't getting good results. They're dropping off, they're quitting early. But the other frustrating thing, just, just from a number standpoint and a business standpoint is, you know, 
a month later, a new contest is starting. We have to find a whole new cohort of people to do them. And if all these people weren't successful the first time, they're not going to sign up again and again and again. So it was just hard. It was hard to pitch these programs to people. And, you know, you always had another one coming and it was always going to fail. And I remember very specifically, I sat down with a guy. He was you know, an employee. He was kind of forced to do the program anyway. And I'm listening to the things that he's eating. And he's, you know, waking up in the middle of the night eating cereal. And he's on a lot of the carbohydrates and whole grains and whatever. And I'm just listening to him. And I'm thinking like, okay, wow, you have mentioned no fat. You're trying to lose like 25 pounds. So I just said, like, look, let's see if we can get a little bit more fat in your diet and, and you know, see how this goes. And I, right. I'll never forget. It came back to me a day and a half later. He says, dude, I've, I've already lost two pounds. What, what the hell is this keto thing? <laughs> and I'm like, that's great. First of all, second of all, I've heard of it, but I really don't know enough about this. So let me find out and I'll tell you. And, and sure enough, that, that's where we really deep dove into the low carbohydrate space. That was 2018. I want to say that we really got into that and started realizing like carbohydrates were not essential in the diet. This guy won the contest. And so we got recognized for that. He got recognized for that. Um, he ended up getting really close to his goal weight. So in 60 days, he lost like 25 pounds. We were using body fat scales. And so that was the other surprising thing is like, we were validating that people were losing fat. They weren't just losing weight. They were losing fat. And just so on a BIA machine, like a, like an in-body. Exactly. It was the in-body, in-body 570. Yeah. Yeah. Bioelectrical impedance. And so it can measure, you know, skeletal muscle mass or fat mass. And people weren't losing, you know, lean mass. They weren't losing water weight. They were losing a lot of fat. And so we finished that contest and like really stoked. This guy got really good results. And my wife and I were sitting around and, you know, preparing for the next one and just kind of talking like this, this sucks. Like we have to go find new people. Like, what are we going to do? We have to run this stupid program. And and we kind of have this idea, like, what if we, what if we do our own thing? What if we sign people up for this, but rather than mess with all the other things that the company was doing, why don't we find other meal plans and give them to them? And why don't we do some seminars and we can bring people in and talk to them about this in the very beginning. And then maybe have other seminars where we talk about, you know, if you're stalling, these are some things you can do and maybe some things that you can do when you weigh out. And so we just started running our own program and everybody who signed up with us knew that they were doing this rogue thing that nobody was talking about. We could fly under the radar. The company didn't know. And we got people really great results. We had the advantage of using that scale to measure weight and body fat percentage. And, you know, this isn't a random controlled trial, but we have data from all those people who did the contest. And it was, it was like more than 60% of the people who started actually finished. So the compliance was way better. We tracked over, I want to say it was over like 160 or 180 people. And we found that of those people, the, the, the 68% or whatever it was that finished, it was like 121 people. They lost um, a combined 98% of all their weight came from fat. wow it's mind-blowing i never thought you could do that in any textbook that i have for nutrition or personal training there's nothing that says that you can do that and again this isn't a randomized controlled trial but this is a pretty large sample of people men and women young and old some people wanted to lose 200 pounds other people wanted to gain 10 pounds of muscle like it was all across the board and we had you know very simple meal plans that we gave to people and really you know pretty low level of educational resources besides, you know, just the low carbohydrate space and people got tremendous results. And so for me, that was it. That was what I was going to do. And that was my entire career at that point. 
And that flipped the switch for you because you saw real results and you saw like it was the exact same kind of challenge. And the only thing that deferred was the type of food that you were recommending to your clients. Yep. Amazing. It was. It amazing. was really amazing. So I hope you have enjoyed this, the final episode of the ketogenic series on the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. I really hope you've taken a lot away from this. Some of the key points that I would like to reiterate would be to understand that a ketogenic diet is our natural and normal state. Just because it has been presented as an iteration for a diet in the last few years does not make it a fad. When you understand the body and, and how the body works and how the body burns calories, you should very quickly understand that this is the way the body is supposed to run. It makes the most sense logically, anatomically, it makes the most sense evolutionarily, and it makes the most sense when the rubber meets the road. When I'm working with clients who are frustrated and are hungry all the time and are trying to follow the latest diet and and follow the guidelines and try to eat more grains and fruits and vegetables and think that they're doing themselves a favor and then they fail and think they're a total failure and they blame themselves and think they don't have willpower and and that's just not true if you are using a well-formulated ketogenic diet you should learn very quickly that you feel great. You don't feel hungry. You have boundless amounts of energy and motivation. You might even notice that your sleep is better or more efficient. I notice all the time people tell me that in six hours they feel like they get a full night's sleep where they were feeling like they were sleeping terribly for nine hours. All of those things really improve on a low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet. It was cool to hear from all of the people that we heard from, not only the medical professionals, but also the citizen scientists from this episode, the people that took their health into their own hands and wanted to try something because what they were doing was not working. I hope you take that spirit of their stories into your own personal story and find ways to get more low carbohydrate or ketogenic diets into your life. And so you notice their benefit. So thank you again so very much for listening to this episode of the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. Thank you so very much for listening to this special episode taken from the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. If you haven't already, please follow our show on Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and review on that platform as it is the best way to continue to get our message out to new people all over the world. And as we said in the introduction, feel free to book a 30-minute complimentary session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com so we can discuss your health and fitness goals and help you come up with a plan. Thank you so very much, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.